Our text this morning comes from the second chapter of the book of Titus. If you would turn to uh, that chapter in the New Testament, you got the five T's together. Titus chapter 2. Let's start our reading in chapter 1 and verse uh, 16. Read down through verse 10 of Titus 2. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? Let's hear the Word of the Lord. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, nor slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that any opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you, O God, to be with us and to bless us. And pray that you would be with me as I preach this text. Pray that you would be with the people, that they may be instructed by it. And may we be encouraged in our Christian walk, we pray. Ask if any here outside of faith or any here that are caught up into lawlessness, that you would grant repentance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nouveau Parenting. Imagine for a moment that you were raised by parents who were very, very permissive. They claimed to be Christians, but the way that they raised you was more of a hands-off type of approach. In other words, there was no discipline, no correction, none whatsoever. And you may say that's far-fetched. Well, I know someone that believes that if a child has a toy... You don't take the child away from the toy, no matter how long they have it. You let them determine if they're ready to get rid of it, even if another child's asking to play with it, the other child's wanting to play with them. And even though you can also see that the one child who has the toy does not want to let it go because he does not want to share it. And there are people that think like that. There are people that raise their children like that. Or you can imagine, as you say to your mother, uh, Larry and I are going to, Go down to the pick-a-pack or the 7-Eleven or the U-Totem or whatever you call it, Sonny's here, I think. And we're going to steal some candy and we're going to try to sneak out with some beer as well. And your mother say, well, that's fine. Just don't get caught. Nouveau parenting. Well, we recognize as parents we don't always make the best decisions. We make mistakes as parents. 
But one thing uh, that we do know is that we are to correct our children. And there is no such thing as nouveau permissive parenting that is in any way whatsoever biblical. Well, in the text this morning from the book of Titus, uh, we see that God in no way is a nouveau permissive parent. Our God is a God who instructs us in the way that we are to live. It's not suggestions. It's instruction. It is commandments that God gives to us in his word. And we keep this in mind. The same God who instructed Paul to instruct Titus, to instruct the church, is the God that we worship here this morning, the God that we serve today. Crete was a spiritual wasteland. It was a place where God was not known. It was a place where law was not observed. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, How Shall We Then Live, wrote this. Listen to this quote. When we base society on the Bible, on the infinite personal God who is there and has spoken, his provides an, his provides an absolute by which we can conduct our lives and by which we can judge society. This leads to freedom without chaos. When we base society on humanism, which he defines as a value system rooted in the belief that man is his own measure, that man is autonomous, totally independent, all values are relative. And we do not have a way to distinguish right from wrong except for synthesis, pragmatism, utilitarianism, because we disagree on what is best for the group. That's a society that has no moral compass. No guideline for what is right and what is wrong and what rules is opinion. Well, in this text, we see very much so that God cares how we live as he instructs Titus what to teach the people who are at the church in Crete and his things that are given to him by God himself. We'll see this this morning because Christianity is a practical religion. There's a great book called Practical Christianity by uh, J.C. Ryle because Christianity is a practical religion. It speaks to the way we are to live, the way that we are to order our lives. And four things very quickly this morning. Well, not too quickly. Uh, The practical exhortations to Titus, practical exhortations to men, practical exhortations to women, and practical exhortations to slaves. In the first place, then, practical exhortations to Titus. Uh, The apostle here is addressed by contrast. Uh, He says, but as for you. Uh, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Again, you remember that Crete was thoroughly pagan. They had never heard the gospel. They had never been instructed in the things of the Lord. They did not have any idea who Jesus was. There was no influence of the Holy Spirit whatsoever. And the reputation of the Cretans was one that was poor. Well, they had a reputation, but it was a bad one. Surrounding nations knew them as scoundrels. They knew them as cheats. They knew them as liars. They knew them as those who were not to be trusted. Uh, And it was so extensive, as you remember from first chapter one, uh, 12 and 13. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. So what is happening here is Titus is ministering in an area that is totally pagan. And people have come to know Christ. People have come to be converted. 
And so Titus is there, a young man with responsibility of taking the gospel and applying it to these people. You remember how he described them? They are insubordinate. They are disobedient. They are vain talkers, he says. They are deceivers. They're basically enemies of the gospel of Christ. And these people, he in particular, he calls them the circumcision party, are people who are teaching that in order to be a Christian, in order to truly be converted, not only must you trust Jesus, you must also have the Old Testament sign of circumcision placed upon you. Otherwise, you cannot truly be converted. The Apostle Paul said in the book of Galatians that people that are believing this and people that are doing this and making shipwreck of their faith because it turns Christianity into a works religion of necessity. If it's Jesus plus anything else, it doesn't become a religion of faith and grace. It becomes a religion of work. So Paul here is bringing this out before Timothy. and He says, you see what they have done. You see what they believe. You see how they're teaching. You see what they're thinking. He says, you, on the other hand, do not teach these things. But rather, he says this, you are to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is the antidote to the poison of heresy. Sound doctrine is the antidote to the poison of heresy, which is being propagated. He says, do not teach these things. You imagine this young man. I don't know. I think Titus was younger than Timothy. I don't know. Maybe Timothy was a little bit younger. But they're both younger than Paul. And he's been given this responsibility to go and pastor in this church. Uh, Daunting responsibility to go and pastor in uh, this church. And so he tells him uh, that he is to lead forth the banner of truth by undoing bad teaching. And it's very hard to undo bad teaching. That's why it's so important that when a man comes into our denomination and he goes through his presbytery exams, he is examined very thoroughly, very carefully as to what he believes concerning the scriptures and concerning theology. And if he believes that there's all kind of ways to get to God apart from Jesus, he had better not get through that exam because that's heresy. So it is very important that what is taught from the pulpit, what is taught in the church, is something that is in agreement with the Bible. Uh, these people are being taught things and embracing things that are contrary to Scripture, and therefore it's going to affect the way that you live, because we know this to be the case, do we not? What you believe, what you truly believe and accept as truth in your life is going to affect the decisions that you make. That's simply logic. If you believe, if you play with gasoline and matches in your house, you're probably going to burn your house down unless you're really foolish. You're not going to do that. Because the fact is, you know the consequences of it. Well, we still, in, in the things of theology, then we still have to recognize that these things are given to us for a reason. Not so we can sit in the pew on Sunday and hear somebody preach the word of God, but so you can put them into practice. So you can live by them, so you can embrace them. And so that Christianity is a matter not simply of intellectual knowledge. It is a matter of commitment. It is a matter of pursuing after God. It is a matter of sanctification as well. And so Timothy then, I mean, Titus then has the responsibility to go in and instruct these people in sound doctrine. And where does he get sound doctrine? Well, sound doctrine comes from the Holy Scriptures. 
It comes from the word of God. When you read the Bible, uh, you're not reading a work that is the opinion of people. When you read the Bible, you're not reading a book that is a product of some vivid imagination. And this is very important. When you read the Bible, you're not reading the thoughts of some primitive group that was basically superstitious. We read in the scriptures, Timothy says, all scripture is God breathed and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's what the scriptures breathe out from God. Theopneustasis, you've heard me use that word many times, a compound word, meaning God and breath, brought out forth from God, inspired by God. That's the Bible. And then the source of all scripture, of all truth, then, must be the word of God. The people that wrote the scriptures were not block-headed flat earthers. They were intelligent people. They were smart people. They were people that wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. What does it say in John seventeen seventeen? That was one of your memory verses. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so as Timothy does this, how is he to do it? Well, it tells us in verses 7 and 8, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Now, Tim and the Titus has this responsibility then. He is to instruct by teaching, but to demonstrate his conviction that what he's teaching is true and God's word, he's to live it out. He is to set before them a model doing the things that he instructs him to teach these other people. And by doing that, you see, they're going to be concluding this. He takes this seriously. Not only has he told us these things that we need to be doing, but he's doing them himself. He takes them seriously, this young man does. And so the reason he does that is so there will be no ground for accusation. Oh, who is this that would be accusing? Again, they will have nothing evil to say about us. Well, it's those who disagree with his teaching. Those who think that uh, Titus is just absolutely wrong in the things that he's saying. He does not know what he's talking about. And so, therefore, we don't have to listen to him. But then you notice he's willing to put his life on the line for what he's teaching. And he is to live it out according to what the Apostle Paul says here in sound speech that cannot be retorted. In other words, no one can enter into a debate with him and say, you're wrong on this. Well, explain why I'm wrong. Sound speech. Biblical speech. That's what he's to do. So he's to instruct by teaching, he is also to instruct by living his life out faithfully before those watching eyes. Well, then he gets into his responsibility to the older men. Hippocrates believed that life was in seven stages. The last stage was this old age, which the Greeks thought started at 60. 60 is the new what? 30. You hear all that kind of stuff all the time. That's a bunch of nonsense. 60, 60. And some people are kind of healthy at 60. Others not real healthy at 60. But 60, 60. That's just it. So he's teaching and dealing with men 
if we understand that uh, if we follow the Greek idea of uh, the seven stages by Hippocrates, then uh, these men are at least 60 years and older that he's teaching. The older men. And this is the challenge to the pastor. This is no easy calling. Uh, being a pastor is no easy calling. You're on 24-7, which is just the nature of the work. But then you have to correct people. And that's the challenge to the pastor, a challenge to Titus. The apostle wrote, Paul wrote Timothy to preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, he says to Timothy. Well, the same thing is true here. That Titus may not want to preach the word. But he has to anyway. He may not feel like it. He has to anyway. That's his calling. How will they be instructed if he ignores the responsibility that he has to preach and to teach the word of God? The older men in the church, what are they to be? They're to be sober minded. What does that mean? They are to be sober minded. They can't have a sense of humor. They have to be dour. No, that's not what that means. It's, but they are very serious about the gospel in Christ's church. That's what it means. They are to be dignified. Uh, they uh, focus their lives on things that are noble and good. These are men who are worthy of respect in the church. Again, how they conduct themselves in the church concerning the gospel, the importance of the gospel, the importance of believing the gospel, the importance of living out the gospel in their lives. They are to be dignified as well. They are to be self-controlled. They are to conquer natural passions that are contrary to the word of God. If they have a tendency to anger, then they are to deal with that. If they have a tendency to be uh, impatient, they are to deal with that as a matter of self-control. They are to be sound in the faith. In love and steadfastness, they are to have a healthy faith, a vibrant faith. They are to be loving. They are to be kind. They are to set forth an example of bearing up under trials. One word is given to the young men. Certainly all these things would apply to the young men, but Paul says one thing to the young men. If you've read the text, you know what it says. They are to be self-controlled. I read somewhere. I didn't write it down, so I won't quote it exactly. But it said, a young man who does not control his passions will be driven to ruin eventually. So the young men are to bridle their whole being. They are to keep themselves in check as the bridle of a horse keeps that horse in check. They are to keep themselves in check. Seeing to it that their passions do not get the best of them, they are to control their anger, they are to control their lust, they are to control their worldliness, their affections for money, their affections for the things of the world. These things are to be kept in check. It takes effort to be a Christian. And it doesn't come naturally. It's actually supernaturally. It comes to us by God's grace. So these young men are to seek to become mature in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the next, the exhortation to women. The older women in the congregation, well, they are to demonstrate that they are Christians. They are not to be given to slander, gossip. I wrote down here what John Calvin said about this text. If I read it, the lady's not going to hear anything else I say. 
So I'm not going to read it. But I'll be happy to give you a copy of it if you'd like to see what Calvin said about gossip. I'd be happy to do so. They are not to be given to drinking too much. John Calvin said this. I will read this one. Well, after all, uh, after all is drunkenness. What is drunkenness but a kind of beastliness which destroys all reason and understanding in those who are made in the image of God? They are to control their drinking. They are to be teachers to the younger women. This presupposes something. It presupposes maturity. If you ask the older women to teach the younger women, then it presupposes maturity on the part of the older women, spiritual maturity and wisdom. When my boys were little, there was one lady that Melinda called often. Her name was Ruth Dallahan. Ruth, uh, wish y'all could, you'll, you'll meet her one day. But when she, Ruth raised three boys. We had three boys when we moved out here, and we got another one. Uh, after we lived here for a little while, like uh, three years, I think. But she would call Ruth, and Ruth would always give good advice. That's what this is talking about. Let the older women teach the younger women. Now, granted, we live in a society where the Word of God is available all the time. You can listen to sermons on your phone any time of the day. You can listen to Alistair Begg. I really appreciate his preaching. He says some things that I disagree with. I think he's Baptist, which means he's wrong about some things as well, but that's okay. Great preacher. Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, you know, so the Word of God is available to us, readily available to us. It is not wrong if you're younger to ask someone older, help me out here. Can you give me some advice here? Can you, can you give me an ear? And I think it was uh, I think it was Alistair Begg that said that um, that you do so with humility. The older women do so with humility as they teach the older women as they come to not to be busybodies. God just goes and says, "Look, you're making a terrible mistake here. You just don't know what you're doing." But as they ask for help, then it is to be offered. And if you have an opportunity to correct something, it is certainly not inappropriate to do that. To the younger women. Teach them to love their husbands and children. Why would the scripture say that? Teach them to love their husbands and their children. Well, one possible reason could be that because where they live and because of what they have been believing and been teaching all these years, uh, then they may be rather uh, self-centered and detached from their families. But another possibility is... And they are to love them as Christian wives and Christian mothers. And there's a difference there in loving as a non-Christian wife and mother and loving as a Christian wife and mother. They also are to be self-controlled. All of this was addressed to, addressed to each of the groups. They are also to be self-controlled. They are to be pure. And Jesus speaks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For they shall see God. And this means that they are to be engaged in things that promote piety and godliness, sanctification, and avoiding things contrary to God's calling for us as his children that do not promote piety and godliness. Whatever is contrary to these things, she is to work at home. She is to be busy at home. 
Unlike 1 Timothy 5.14, besides that, they learned to be idlers, going about from house to house. This is the Bible. This is not John Calvin. Uh, And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not say. Now, is this teaching that a wife at all times must never work and stay inside a house and take care of things at home? Well, if that's what it's teaching, we have a conflict with the Proverbs 31, where it describes the woman who is a businesswoman who also is a vine dresser. It also is contrary to what Lydia, who was a businesswoman, who had a family. She was a seller of purple, I think it says in the scriptures. So that is not what this is teaching. But I will say this, that even if she works, she has to be faithful in her duties as a wife and as a mother. Alistair Begg said this, there is no greater task our privilege in the whole world and no greater calling than that of establishing a godly home. I tell you, this is nothing more difficult either than establishing a godly home. She is to be uh, submissive to her husband in kindness. Was this something that is to be universally done? The answer is no. She does not do things that are contrary to Scripture. She must obey God rather than man. But he is the head of the house, and that is by God's design. That means he needs to be striving to be spiritually mature in the Scriptures, leaving it a good example for the wife and the rest of his family. Well, the last thing he talks about is slaves, practical exhortations to slaves. And don't, don't bristle up at this. These slaves, as they are, have been converted. And... What difference does it make then that they were converted? Well, he says they're to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Again, except in the case when they were told to do something contrary to Scripture or contrary to God's revealed will. They were not to do that. But he tells them that they are not to be pilfers. They're pilfers. They're not to be stealing from their, their masters. They are to exercise true good faith before them. In other words, they exhibit the characteristics of a Christian even in that situation where they are bond slaves. Because they do not want to give any reason, as he says here in the text, so that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In everything, you may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, he says to slaves. And so then you be uh, honest. You be hardworking. Remember in uh, Philemon, and Paul writes, Onesimus, writes Philemon about Onesimus, who was a slave who had escaped And he meets Paul. He's converted under the apostle Paul, and Paul sends him back. But he says to Philemon, as he sends him back, you know, you owe me. He said, I I don't have to mention it. I'm not going to mention it, but you actually owe me. And I want you to treat him uh, as a fellow Christian. And they were both believers. And Paul gives that instruction to him. And Paul does say in that letter that it is better to be free than to be enslaved. But in the first century, uh, that application of obedience applied to them even in that situation where they found themselves. And so he gives these instructions here. And again, dealing with those in the church who are Christians and faith making a difference in their lives. Some families, you can tell they're related. Some families, you look at the sons, you can't even tell that they're from the same family. 
but others you can. Andy Edwards, who is, uh, I think he's an elder still over at Covenant, said that uh, whenever someone saw one of his brothers, they would know immediately that's an Edwards uh, family resemblance. There was a man that lived, I think, in Mississippi. And uh, I think Dan and Michelle have heard this before. Melinda has not because I heard it at RYM when Mike Howell was preaching 500 years ago. He said this. There was a man in Mississippi that had an eye that cocked off to the side. He had 11 children. Every one of those children had an eye that went off to the side. Identifying Mark. And all of them. Strong gene, apparently. Well, another question uh, for all of us this morning is this. How much do you exhibit the characteristics of Christ in your life? Is it that as you look at your life, you really see more worldliness than spirituality? You really see more love for the world than love for Christ or for the kingdom of heaven? Is your life a reflection of the teachings of Scripture? Is the love that you express for people, the love that flows from a love for Christ and a desire to be obedient to him? You remember John 17, 17 again. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We are to take every thought captive to Christ. We want to live in such a way that those who don't know us so well and those who don't not that familiar with us, but know that we're a Christian. We want them to see us and say, yes, you can tell that they're a Christian. You can see it. You can tell it. You remember what it says in First John, they will know we are Christians by the love that we have one for another. It's paramount that we love one another as God's people. You'll be closer to some than others, but we are to love one another, period. That means we pray for one another. We treat one another kindly as well. That's a part of being a member of the family of God. So we must uh, give ourselves to the scriptures, right? The basis of the teaching of Titus was the word of God. We give ourselves to the Bible and we give ourselves to hearing sermons. I would encourage you, if you have never gotten on your cell phone, a place where you can go hear sermons, uh, do it. There's too many good ones out there to listen to. And you can listen to it in your car when you're Driving to work or uh, whatever the case may happen to be. I'd also say that um, you need to be reading the scriptures as well. You need to be praying daily. You pray that Lord would give you grace to hate the things in your life that are contrary to true piety. See, he has given Titus these instructions because God cares about his church. And he cares about the way that we behave. And so these are, if you will, ornaments of grace in the lives of these people. And at the end of it, he says this, so that in everything, I'm sorry, let's go up a little bit to verse 8, having nothing evil to say about us. That's the concern of the Apostle Paul. You've got all this going on over here that is contrary to Scripture. Titus, it's your job to go in there and correct these things. And you do it by teaching and preaching Scripture. And the wonderful news is this. When we fail, and we will fail, we are not perfect. We will fail. 
we have that great assurance of acceptance through Christ. That through Jesus, we are forgiven. If you don't love him, I encourage you to do so. To come to faith in Christ. If you do love him, rejoice in him. Let's pray.